Good evening, everyone, and welcome to episode 32 of the Retrospectors podcast. My name is Patrick Arthur, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, James Terlings. James, are you glad that we're finally getting a chance to actually do this episode? Yeah, I mean, you were kind of slacked off there a little bit, so... Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you can call it slacking off. In a way, it was. Um, I kind of have the opposite problem that a lot of people do with this coronavirus thing. I work in supermarket retail, and as a result, instead of losing my job, I instead got many, many hours of overtime to try and meet up with the crazy demand. As a result, I uh, kind of did slack off on my video game playing duties that this podcast demands you know most people are getting more time to play video games patrick (laughs) yeah so like i said i have the opposite problem but i'm sure it's a problem that a lot of people out there wouldn't mind having so i'm not going to complain too much about it uh it did mean i was a bit slack though so this episode is as you might have realized one week late um from this point onwards we'll be resuming the fortnightly schedule though um things seem to be getting a bit more under control as we are more prepared for the demand so uh, our next episode for the following fortnight will be two weeks from this one and we'll be back on track and back to a fortnightly release If this is your first episode listening, we are, of course, the Retrospectors podcast. Each and every fortnight, James and I play through a game, usually a classic of the past, from start to finish, and then have an extended discussion slash review of that game. The key wrinkle in the way we approach these things is that we're reviewing these games from a modern perspective. We're not trying to understand how good these games were in the context in which they were produced in that time. We simply want to know how fun a game is it to play today when compared to modern titles. How good is it objectively, if you will? Now, of course, James and I are very opinionated and we share... A very different set of values in evaluating video games, but that's uh, all part of what makes it an interesting show. So this fortnight, we selected, or more accurately, James selected Archimedean Dynasty. It's a uh, flight commander slash X-wing slash submarine game where you sail around the ocean, killing enemy submarines, enemy turrets, and accomplishing a variety of other tasks. So I think the first thing that we do when we talk about our games is we ask, why are we doing it? So, James, can you tell people why we're doing Archimedean Dynasty, yet another game that no one has ever heard of? I'm sure somebody has heard of this game before, probably mostly people from Germany where this game came from originally. I don't think it was a a big hit in the West, but from what I understand, it was quite popular over there. So, you know, the real reason we're playing this game is because as a child, my father owned a CD rom version of its sequel aquinox and i played the ever-loving shit out of that game on his (laughs) you know old beige computer and i'd never gotten around to playing the original so you know every time i booted up and played aquinox a lot of the a lot of the story elements and the characters didn't quite make a lot of sense to me because i didn't know you know what happened in the original game so i was actually been planning to play this game for a while so i could finally fill in that gap of my knowledge you know have you played other flight sims before because yes this is a submarine game but its closest cousin is definitely the flight sim in that the submarine that you're piloting is a 
single vessel craft uh sorry it's a single person craft so you go around the ocean floor in much a similar way as you would in tie fighter because i've never played a game of this genre before in my entire life uh no i actually completely unfamiliar with the genre outside of this series honestly um i I mean, obviously the key difference between this game and something like uh, more traditional flight sims is that you can come to a complete stop without falling out of the sky in this game. But <laughs> other than that, you know... Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. <laughs> pretty, uh, pretty, pretty similar premise, honestly. Lots of holding forward and doing all sorts of maneuvers underwater. Okay, so uh, before we get into a discussion of the episode proper, um, just some housekeeping stuff. So the only place to purchase this game, as far as I'm aware, unless you somehow own an original disc, is to get it from GOG. Uh, It was released in 2015 or something on there. And we were also playing with a mod that I've forgotten the name of, James. What's the name Uh, of the mod It's called Archimedean Dynasty Augmented. If you just Google Archimedean Dynasty mod, it'll be the first result. This guy who made it spent a very long time going through the game and fixing all of the weird translation issues and rebalancing all of the enemy ships to make it a much more pleasant experience. Um, Having played through the game and gone back to read through all of the patch notes thank god we installed this mod because uh some of the late game missions would have been an absolute nightmare to play through without it and uh some of the uh some of the translation fixes are also quite amusing it's not just the translation fixes it also seems like there are a lot of navigation fixes uh over the course of a mission you're regularly required to move to different areas like sometimes up to five or six different stages in a mission and just from reading the patch notes it sounds like there's a lot of ways it breaks or misdirects you or isn't sending you in the right path which if i had to deal with that i would have broken down crying (laughs) because you know the ocean's a big place and if you didn't know where to go you'd basically have to guess so it's hard because we haven't played this game unmodded so the gameplay changes are difficult for us to comment on i don't know if it if the gameplay changes actually lead to a better experience but given the sheer quality of the bug fixing going on i imagine it's at the very least well-intentioned yeah the uh the patch notes are several 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 hundred lines long and uh i think the main thing is that a lot of the fixes uh, happen to uh story triggers so like sometimes levels in the original just won't end if you do the correct uh mm-hmm. the correct stuff and a lot of those have been fixed although i did run into one of these instances uh during my playthrough of the game but uh he said seems to have fixed most of them which is very very welcome so definitely recommend playing with the augmented mod we'll put a link to it on the website page so if you want to check it out you can go to there and if anyone wants to uh, let us know if you've played the mod in the original on the gameplay changes in a significant way i'd love to hear it because I mean, I thought the game was fairly balanced, but I don't know, maybe maybe you think it was better without the mod. Yeah, definitely. Um, what did you think about the GOG release? Um, obviously, the only way to get a game this old running on a modern computer is to emulate it through DOSBox, which GOG has, you know, built into the release, so you don't have to do any of that setup. I found it, you know, absolutely perfect honestly you just press play and aside from having issues with not being able to alt tab like really didn't run into too many issues with just being able to click play and have the game run absolutely no issues and alt tabbing is 
something you don't expect to work for games of this age. Uh, you always get, you know, your screen, <laughs> you know, yeah. you, you alt tap out into 640 by 480 resolution on your desktop. It's like, this isn't going to work. So when you're um, when you're playing this game, you have your phone on you <laughs> so you can uh, stay tapped in. Well, for the most part, yeah, you can actually, um, if you press like alt enter to toggle full screen you can then go back to your computer and then like refill screen it so i found that you know you can you can do it it just is a bit more you know fiddly and just the way it works you know saving in between every mission i didn't have any corrupted saves or anything it all worked as advertised so very happy with the gog version i mean it's the only way to really experience it but it's by no means a bad port or emulation. I was happy with it. Yeah, definitely, uh, definitely check out that if you're interested in this game. After, uh, however, we come down on it. So, do we want to jump into the meat of the discussion? Yeah. So, uh, normally, normally when we start these discussions on games, we introduce the premise. But even before the premise, there's something <laughs> that needs to be discussed because before. James and I started this game. James gave me an unusual request. He asked that I read a manual. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Patrick kind of like I sent I sent Patrick the message in, and I'm like, yeah, before you start playing this game, you have to read the manual. And uh, I got I, I got a response to the effect of like, yeah, I mean, sure, but but why, um, Patrick? Would you agree <laughs> that reading the manual is mandatory for playing this game yeah it's uh it's an interesting discussion that we've had over the course of this podcast because the question is to what degree should you be required to read extraneous materials to make sense of the game versus naturally learning about the game world and the mechanics by actually playing the game. And the reason why after reading it, I concluded that it's an excellent idea to read the manual is because it in a lot of ways is the best writing that exists in the entire game's world. (laughs) And I think that the way in which it's presented is extremely well done. So the manual isn't just uh, splurging information at you, even though it does contain a lot of information. It's presented as four separate historical documents that explain the history of the world of Archimedean dynasty. And, you know, one will be a UN report uh, from the Western Federations Alliance. And then another one will be an internal propaganda document from the shogunate. And they've all got their own slant and spin, which makes them very entertaining to read. Yes. To reveal how the world of Archimedean dynasty came into place and what the factional and political conflicts and tensions that exist uh, under the surface. To give you a very a brief quick rundown before we discuss the manual further, the world of Aqua takes place, you know, hundreds of years in the future where the world fell into a state of nuclear warfare due to a, like the resources of the planet running out. Um, and as a result of that, the Earth's surface became utterly uninhabitable. You know, there's radiation everywhere. Everything is on fire. Um, the, the ocean surface is covered in this thick layer of biomatter that resulted from the warfare, and humanity has 
descended below the surface of the ocean to create habitats below. And so the entire game world takes place underwater in a society that has evolved over about a hundred, a few hundred years, right? Set in 26 or 2700. Yeah, the, the actual breadth and scope of the history within the manual is actually something I was not expecting. It, it's very expansive, right? Incredibly expansive. Uh, I can't think of a game that I've played that has a manual that goes in this sort of depth. But as like a history nerd and as a lover of dystopian fiction, I loved it. I thought yeah, it, was it was great. Very well presented. And I mean, the thing about these dystopian world world building is that to a degree, the realism is kind of irrelevant. Like you're not when when you read about these things, you won't be convinced about the existence, you know, the possibility of it not based on the science. I, I don't care about that. What I care about is that the detail is well-developed and there is certainly much, much detail on all the intricacies of how this world works and the different factions and how they eventually banded together and the corporation's essential takeover of one of the factions. It's all all fascinating stuff. So yeah, 10 out of 10 for the manual. Yes, yeah, so so that we're perfectly clear, this manual is 30 A4 pages of story background. Um, it's a lot. Like, it took me quite a while to read through it all, but, you know, the entire time, I loved it. I honestly think that a game's core information should be presented to the player through the game, but honestly, in this instance, I had a lot of fun reading up on the backstory of the world. It's really, really interesting, and they do, because it's 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 like alternate history, right? The, the beginning of the story takes place in a world that we're quite familiar with and then it slowly starts to you know diverge in a lot of weird ways um with lots of power blocks uh, going against like, there was this bit um i think it was my favorite part because it hit close to home kind of because of the continual warfare and the heating up of the earth's surface australia which is where we're from um <laughs> became very very hot increasingly so to the point where all of the australians had to flee north to southeast asia where, uh, you know, as refugees, they were brutally gunned down by um, by the Japanese and the Chinese forces. I thought that, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff happens very slowly and organically throughout the manual and its history. And I think that leads the world, like, when you start to be, like, a lot more believable than a lot of other games when you begin them. So, essentially, the modern take on what the manual does is something like the newer Deus Ex games, uh, Human Revolution and Mankind Divided. And in those games, what happens is over your playtime of playing through the game, you find ebooks um, and all of these bits and pieces of information that make up the history of the world. And you kind of gradually get it little bit by little bit until the end of the game, if you're reading them all, you'll have about the same information you got from the manual. I have to say that I think both systems have their merits. Like in the Deus Ex system, it's a more organic way of delivering the information. Yeah. But I also did really enjoy and appreciate having all the history there up front because it meant that it just contextualized all of the more minute interactions that were happening. So um, 
I enjoyed it. I enjoy it. It's a different take to what we see from modern video games, but I don't think it's a bad one. It's just a different approach, and it's one that I thought worked really well. Yeah, honestly, the closest thing that I compare it to is the beginning of Metal Gear Solid 3, maybe, where you sit there for like 40 minutes while they, you know, give you exposition about the direction that um, the world's been taking over the past few years. And I, I kind of like it. I think it really sets the tone for what's to come. And, you know, if you've got the patience, even if you're not interested in playing this game, I would highly recommend giving it a read. You can find it free online very easily. Um, it's just a very enjoyable alternate history. I think it's possible that reading it may interest you enough that you start the game. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's got all the seeds there. So, yeah, before we start, we read that and we both enjoyed it. And that was like the precursor. The, the premise of the game is that you play a character called Captain Emerald Deadeye Flint. You're a mercenary captain. You're middle-aged. It says you're in your 40s or about 40 or something. And uh, the opening voiceover gives you this sort of impression of like a cynical, nihilistic individual who's just going from mission to mission in order to earn money. Yes. He gets this, you know, cheap mission to escort Sulphur, but along the way, he's attacked by a squadron of elite shogunate ships. Everyone around him is killed. He's captured, but is basically jettisoned into an escape pod and uh, picked up by another training vessel. And he has to start his way from the bottom all the way to the top as he continues to pick up mercenary missions and eventually gets to the bottom of the mystery of why a, uh, a random sulfur shipment was attacked by an elite squad of troops. I guess the first thing that struck me when we started playing Archimedean Dynasty is how similar its overall structure is to a game we played recently, Armored Core. One of the things, you know, that Armored Core and this game share in their overall gameplay loop is that you go between these like story segments where you're a outfitting your vessel and you know reading mission and lore stuff and then b into the really short little missions uh, where you go around you know having your gunfights and that kind of thing and it kind of goes back and forth between the story and the the, the other gameplay um where this game one of the criticisms we had of Armored Core was that the story wasn't very well presented. And I think that Archimedean Dynasty does a much better job structurally of presenting its story. Like, um, for example, right at the start of the game, you'll load into an undersea, you know, excavation base, right? And you can see all the different parts of the, the base. Like, uh, you can see the dock and you can see the... Um, the crew room which are highlighted as text over this picture of the base and what you do is you'll click on the dock for example and it'll open this little window that'll show you know a viewport of the dock um, and it's got you know these animated backgrounds and these people walking back and it has a few people that are highlighted that you can click on and have a discussion with it almost uh, it's almost like you know kind of like a visual novel style presentation in these segments um, and through that you kind of explore the world and the different seaports and you know kind of get to know the place a bit better did you um how do you feel about this in comparison to how it was done in armored core patrick well, well the thing about armored core that really stood out is that although there were hints of this really fascinating and dark world there was absolutely no detail yeah there was nothing nothing like what's presented in Archimedean Dynasty. So I really do appreciate the effort. This is where I need to be, get a bit critical, though, yeah. because although I think that 
over the runtime of playing this game, you get a really well fleshed out world. And it's a world and setting that I absolutely love. Like this is this is a strong dystopian setting. I think that the actual conversations you have with people are quite poorly written. I actually agree with you. Um, and I'm not too sure if it's because of a poor translation, which doesn't... It must be. It doesn't make sense to me, though, because the, the level of writing in the manual is so high. Like, the person who wrote the manual is a very competent English speaker based on the, like their grammar and the, the language they use. But then you get to these in-game dialogues and they fall very, very flat a lot of the time. Like, uh, yeah. there's no character portraits, so you can only see people talking through text. You don't know what the people look like. Um, they don't have a heap of personality to them. They try to give the main character personality, but it's not all that entertaining, I didn't find. I would describe the way the characters speak to one another as speaking at one another. Yeah. Each character is shouting their kind of obvious intentions at one another. There's no subtlety or artfulness to the way that these people are communicating. It doesn't help that so much of the dialogue that is spoken has all these phrases in caps locks as if they're like essential keywords, keywords. that could yep. potentially open up. And it comes across as just awkward and clunky and ugly. Uh, there are a couple of exchanges which are kind of, uh, which are better written, but on the whole, it's just kind of lifeless. It's, yeah. Like you said, it, it falls very flat. It feels very much in terms of overall story structure that the characters are more like uh, lifeless pawns on a chessboard where mm -hmm. the like the world and what's going on and slowly evolving around the characters is the real star of the show. I think um, another thing that this game was lacking that may have helped a lot in this way is that... 99% of the way that the story is communicated to you is through dialogue. Yeah. And if you've played uh, classic RPGs, they often use a lot of um, passive description to help set a scene. So, you know, they'll say, like, the starboard cabin was dank. There was, a, there was a steady drip of water dropping into a bucket to the left of the poorly scarred desk or whatever you want to do. But using words to set a scene and create a sense of atmosphere is really important when the dialogue is this flat and uninteresting so the absence of that suddenly struck me yeah i kind of agree with you but on the other hand i think the game presents the locations that you're standing in fairly well especially in terms of like the sound effects and that kind of thing like uh every time you go into a bar you can hear the ambient chatter of patrons in the background and you know rustling chairs and that kind of thing it kind of feels maybe out of place if you do both at the same time i'm not too sure i think this is one of those things where you know it's a game from 1996 that the graphics actually do suffer and we'll go into great detail on the graphics and I, I don't want to say the graphics are bad because it's a far more complex issue than that yeah. but when it comes to I, I think that while the static images of the stations are done well those pop-up windows are so blurry and low resolution that it doesn't really um 
it doesn't really set the atmosphere as much. Even something like the modern takes on Baldur's Gate or Icewind Dale, when you stretch that out to widescreen, you get a real believable sense of place. And I didn't get that here. And I think that I would have preferred text descriptions. It would have let me imagine these places a lot more effectively than what they were showing me on the screen. I I agree with you with the resolution thing there. The game doesn't scale up super well. Um, I actually think that these visual novel sections look really nice when you look at them in the tiny windows, but nobody wants (laughs) to play that way these days. Um, And I I wouldn't say they look bad, but I I agree with you. They don't convey what they're trying to as well as they probably used to. Um, The only other major story note I wanted to go into, actually, there's a couple, so sorry. The first thing I wanted to just hone in on for a second is the character of Flint himself. Yeah. I think that he's a far more interesting character in all of the cutscenes that he's presented in, and I think his dialogue is very well written in that he's so cynical and deadpan. It's wonderful. But then you, when you're controlling him in the conversation, he's just kind of like shouting these obvious things at the other person. Yeah. His jokes are all loud and in the other person's face. Yeah, there's no subtlety to it at all. Like, uh, yeah, yeah they, I feel these like... These two things didn't mesh, yeah. Yeah, I feel like he should have had a lot more snide remarks that go over people's heads, that kind of thing, whereas... Yes, exactly, yeah. yeah. where it just didn't convey itself very, very well through the dialogue, where it did, it really did in the cutscenes. So mm-hmm. that kind of disconnect definitely distracts from the experience. With, like... I really like the structure of this game. I think it's very well done. But the actual implementation of the dialogue really mars the experience a lot for me. Um, I think that still through the story, you get this really good slowly building together understanding of the world and its current state. But to get to that point, you do have to sit through a lot of bland dialogue. Yes, I and that's the thing. I completely agree with you. I think that with the background of the manual and just the little bit of snippets that you pick up over your you know, 15 to 20 hour playtime, it, it's really well done. It's just the way, I guess, the moment to moment story interaction isn't too strong. With one major exception, sorry, one major exception to the strength of the world, and I really dislike this, Okay, and that's the Bions. I, I don't know how you feel about the Bions, but they're a thing there as an entity that's introduced as kind of mysterious they start off really interesting yeah and big spoiler warning going forward because this is one of the primary plot points of the game so if you're concerned about that at all just skip ahead yeah just skip a few minutes forward yeah no i agree with you so the biants are effectively a ai controlled race of uh ships basically Um, And they start off very mysterious, like they're just these silent black boats that are super fast and super hard to hit in combat and just come out of nowhere, have no life signals in them whatsoever. They're very unnerving to begin with um, in the way that they're presented, but the game just hands you the answers very quickly and i don't it kind of ruins the build up honestly so my problem is that not only that it hands you the answers quickly which uh which i agree it does but also that the bions are a very uninteresting faction yes not only do we not know we don't really know anything about them the only way we interact with them is really through combat. They're only ever a threat. We don't even really figure out what it is they're after, like what their goals are. 
And I think that it stands in stark contrast to the deep detail and subtlety and well-designed nature of the Arab Emirate faction and the Shogunate and the Western Empire and the Pirates and the Tornado Zone. And then we just get the Bions who are evil alien cyborgs. And it's just... It's it's lazy almost. Yeah, I actually have a whole paragraph written about this myself. Um, <laughs> so you may like everyone's probably familiar with classic zombie films and TV series at this point, right? Mm-hmm. And the general structure and the beginning few episodes, and you know, or if you read them, the few chapters of these is that the main characters often begin in this world infected by zombies or monsters or some other you know mindless threat right that they have to overcome and then about halfway through the book you reach this point where they're basically no longer a threat to the main character and what ends up happening is that the story diverges and starts focusing on different groups and how they're dealing with the threat and like this interpolitical like conflict between different human groups because obviously you know zombies aren't that interesting overall it's the way they change the world and how they change the way people interact with each other that's interesting Mm -hmm. Archimedean Dynasty takes the opposite approach where it starts with all this really interesting human interaction and then near the end of the game all of that kind of disappears in the face of them dealing with these boring zombies like they've taken the trope and reversed it to not great effect and the thing is I'm not saying you cannot have an evil faction that wants to kill all humanity it's just that you need to explain it more just having a completely mysterious faction that is messing with humanity for reasons unknown is just uninteresting i wanted to have diplomatic sessions with these with this group or at the very (laughs) least i wanted to understand what that ultimate goal was even if it was as simple as we want the minerals that the humans are mining. I think they I think they do mention it occasionally that the reason they're taking out humanity is for resources, but you know, so it's vague. not much. Yeah, I I much preferred the a lot of the game is actually spent hopping around across the planet between different, you know, factions and exploring the various cities and learning about how all the cultures are handling this scary new world and I found that to be the best part of the story by far. Um, and I wish the whole game had just been, you know, going around and understanding the political factions. So we've been chatting for a while now, James. We should probably have a quick music break. Um, is there a particular track that you wanted to start with? Um, I don't actually have one off the top of my head because uh, this is maybe a bit of a spoiler warning for the sound and music section. I actually turned the music off fairly early into the game. So <laughs> You pulled a Patrick, as, as they say. I pulled said. a Patrick. Yeah, well, one of this game's best, like, biggest strengths by far is its sense of atmosphere and i felt that the music tracks really detracted from that because i love the ambience sound in this game to bits i think it's incredible james i'm uh i'm loath to agree with you actually but it's true yeah they're really good like the ambient underwater sounds that you just constantly fed make it feel very like a very oppressive atmosphere and the really poppy music tracks kind of detracted from the tone. I, a lot. I wouldn't call them poppy, but um, they were very intense drum and bass with techno sort of sounding tracks with a very sort of upbeat and fast tone. And I think that it's actually not bad music. And I um, I was kind of muting it on and off over my play playtime. 
But broadly speaking, I agree with you. I found the music detracted from the atmosphere overall. And also, it certainly didn't fit the tone of the game a lot of the time because a lot of the time you weren't in a combat situation, you were playing stealthily or you were just moving from point A to B. And having that insane combat music playing in the background just didn't suit what <laughs> was going no on. This makes no sense. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. But that said, did you have a track that you liked? Did I have a track? I didn't actually have one yeah. prepared. I, w- I sprung the question on you uh, in a hope. To... <laughs> in a hope that I would have one prepared. Well, so there are only, um, there are only, I think, four actual songs. So let's uh, let's put on below because that's the that's the first one that plays in the rotation. All right, no worries. Here's below, guys. that was below and despite us having an extra week to prepare neither of us had picked a song so good job <laughs> us uh, we'll try to we'll try to continue this level of quality going forward thanks for listening guys um <laughs> Just a couple more points about the story. I know we've been harping on about this for half an hour, but it is really is one of the world building in this game. Really, is one of the best things about it. Um, one thing that I really loved is just as you mentioned, it's a very dystopian society, and the absolute horror of living underwater like got to me several times during the gameplay. Right, like there was this section in the story where the Biants were attacking the breathing gas factory of one of the major cities and i was like that's horrifying can you imagine having that explode and then just having your entire population suffocate just just in general there's a degree of vulnerability to living underwater that uh that you don't really fully appreciate until you see all of the weak points of such a society yeah and like I think a lot of the war is really disincentivized because of how fragile each major society really is down there. Like, a major war really would just, like, wipe out two-thirds of humanity, right? Well, it's one of the things that the manual explains really well. It explains the escalation of a war. I think it's in the 2400s or something. I can't remember exactly. But the idea is that the Shogunate and the um, American-led, like, Western Federation... I say American-led, that's not accurate. It's just the Western Federation. They were escalating a conflict until a nuke 
uh, badly damaged the Arab Emirates faction. And both sides and the Arabs were so devastated by what had happened was that they stopped the war and both sides donated millions and millions of dollars to help repair and rebuild the uh, damaged infrastructure so that a kind of steady peace could be preserved. Yeah, because like story-wise, the Arab Clans Union um, exists in a very mineral-rich part of the ocean that is very accessible to both it and the other two major power blocks. And as such, it's developed into a very you know, profitable trading nation that is essential um, for, you know, kind of life to be existing underwater. So, you know, there's basically no way that they can risk starting a war with um, uh, the clans union in the middle because they're just so integral. Um, and in general, like, trading resources are incredibly important down there. And I really loved how um, each of the locations that you visit in this game, the game kind of explains to you with this little like dialogue piece and this bit of text why that you know facility exists be it for mining a certain kind of ore or sulfur or that kind of thing and i think it led um, a lot of believability to each location yeah the places have a reason to exist they're not just arbitrarily built like the cities uh well i mean cities in the real world aren't arbitrarily built they're built around rivers etc so they can have easy ports but because when these cities were first built when humanity was fleeing under the ocean they're almost always got like an engineering objective as their primary um you know reason for to exist in the first place yeah i, I really enjoyed that aspect um, of the game a lot that's basically it for me did you have anything else before we move on to other gameplay? No, that was a primary thing. I do have like a good point that I think will present a good segue between the two bits. Um, okay. And that's, I would say, you'd call it the gameplay aspects of the story, um, the way you can speak to different people and you have different dialogue options. And it's something of a criticism because I feel like a lot of the RPG-ish nature of interacting with people is kind of shallow. A lot of the time you'll speak to a person who will say another person's name. You'll go speak to that person. They'll say someone else's name. And then you go speak to that person and so on and so forth until yep. someone eventually gives you a job. And that job is to transport stuff from point A to B. And then that person that you've delivered the cargo to will tell you to go speak to another person and so on and so forth. It's... And once again, it's not helped by the dryness of the dialogue, but um, the role-playing systems here are extremely shallow and you shouldn't go into this expecting any sort of interesting uh, dialogue options like in a modern RPG like Divinity Original Sin 2, for example. Yeah, so the game's economy, which I guess we'll have to get into for this bit, mm -hmm. um, is kind of balanced around if you do a mission, you get some money, and then you spend it to upgrade your ship. Some of the things you can buy for your ship, such as torpedoes, are expendable, so you will you know, gradually lose money as you play the game. So you're highly incentivized to search out as many side options, uh, side missions to do to make a bit of extra cash in order to keep up with you know, your increasing costs, which uh, fits really well with Flint's kind of story role as a mercenary in the game. Makes perfect sense, unlike a lot of other side missions 
conversations in games. But because of this, you know, the way the dialogue will work is that you'll get a number of dialogue options, you know, two at the most, basically, um, at certain different points. And if you make the right decision, you get rewarded with the chance to make some money in a mission. Um, Flint can be quite a caustic character if you plan to play him that way. Like, you can say some really nasty things to people. And oftentimes, as you'd expect, uh, that means the other person will no longer want to cooperate with you and give you that mission so there is this like sense of a dialogue tree with branching paths but the main story definitely follows the same path the entire way through with a lot of the side missions being gated behind your ability to figure out what the right thing to say is yeah and it's um it's usually pretty obvious to figure out what the correct thing to say is you don't want to be a scared a scared pussycat but neither do you want to be a completely arrogant dickhead and it's usually easy to find the uh the option that's somewhere in the middle i definitely uh chose the dickhead option several times throughout the game because i didn't like the person i was talking to and uh you know that kind of squeezed me for a few missions but i uh totally worth it <laughs> I, I also think that particularly when you're operating in the tornado zone with the pirates you are incentivized to be incredibly a an rude asshole. because yeah, yeah. that's the that's a scenario you're in whereas when i was in the arab emirates section i was a lot more diplomatic generally yeah honestly i think that this game could be vastly improved by just retranslating it and taking more creative liberties with the english translation honestly yeah making it less um less transactional yeah yeah exactly i think by adding a lot of fluff you could add a heap to this game because i think overall the structure is perfectly fine it's the actual like contents of the dialogue itself that are the problem yeah so i think it's pretty clear by this point what our feelings on the story are you know well building good dialogue bad but uh at some point james we should probably talk about the uh the gameplay <laughs> yeah probably because <laughs> you know, uh, this is a video game not a book despite uh despite what our discussion might lead you to so um what what aspect of the gameplay play do you want to get into first because there's a few different systems at play here. All right. Well, I think the very first thing that you notice, um, there's a couple of things I want to start off. The first being the the way that the player is taught how to play the game. And B, the most obvious thing that jumps out to the player, which is this game has zero draw distance. When you first get into the cockpit of your ship, it becomes apparent instantaneously that you can see exactly like two meters in front of your ship before the water becomes you know murky and blurred and i'm not sure if that was intentional to uh, kind of fit with the you know the idea of the world having no sunlight coming through the oceans due to the biolayer on top or if it was just straight up a hardware limitation at the time which i could totally see as well it's both like it's a it was a hardware limitation, but it's entirely justified in world. The ocean is very dark, so... Yeah, and I don't know if you had this reaction upon starting this game as I did, but as soon as I started and saw that I couldn't see anywhere, I was like, what game have I chosen this week? What have I done to us? Oh my god. I did not have that reaction at all. I thought it was entirely appropriate, um, okay. and I thought... I thought that it maybe it's because I had no expectations, but when I started playing and I saw the reliance on sensors and, you know, I know that deep under the ocean there's zero visibility. I've uh, watched a few, um, a few movies and read a book about U-boats. So I didn't expect there to be um, 
there to be much visibility because you know from our world war ii submarine experience it was zero visibility it was just operating on sonar so i was i was grateful for the visibility that i had okay yeah because well that feeling of mine definitely dissipated fairly i don't know about quickly but over the course of the game i felt less blind because i felt blind in the first two missions i found it very Mm -hmm. hard to navigate the game world but by the end of the game like i felt like i had perfect information at all times because the ship's instruments in this game you know there's a very very detailed mini map um at the bottom of your screen and a bunch of other sensors that can be used very effectively to navigate um even if you do have limited visibility i think the ui and the way information is presented to in this game is not just good i think it is brilliant yeah uh, i agree there is an economy of information delivered to you they don't bombard your senses with irrelevant if- info they give you pretty much all the information you need very neatly displayed on your screen and although it takes a while for you to become adept at reading it it is all there for you from the voxel based kind of lay of the terrain that you get down on the bottom of your screen to the quick view of your ship's armor to the um navigational arrays to all the different sensors the information delivered to you is essentially perfect as far as i'm concerned i was extremely impressed with how this game delivered information to the player. Yeah, and the minimap presents information to you in 3D, right? Like, mm-hmm. you're uh, in a lot of games, you only have a few axes of movement, but you have the full range of movement in this game. You know, you have every access, and the minimap still does a brilliant job of conveying, you know, how high you are compared to your enemies, which direction they're in, where the terrain is, that kind of thing. Half the time, I was guiding my ship just looking at the minimap and had no problems doing so. I, I, I loved the, the way information is presented to the player in this game, and it actually gets better and better as you play because as you get different ships your HUD actually changes completely because when you're in your ship you can kind of see like it's as if you're in the cockpit and you can see the outside wall of the ship in front of you which obviously changes when you get a new ship and I really liked that detail too. It um it is worth going back to your first point that is the uh the learning process of actually coming to terms with reading this information because the amount of tutorial in this game is very very little to no, to no no it's existence. basically zero i actually did the first mission before reading the manual and one of the things that happens when you finish a mission is that your autopilot becomes enabled so you can use it to get back to the city and i couldn't figure out what button to press to end the mission so i closed the game went hunting for the manual fell into the rabbit hole that is the background <laughs> law recommended to patrick and then managed to finish the first mission so one of the things that i will tell anybody uh who wants to play this game about is that if you press the h button it comes up with a list of controls which uh i probably pressed like I don't know, like a hundred times throughout the mission because there's a lot of buttons to press in this game. Yeah, be prepared to do a bit of self-teaching and self-learning to actually wrap your head around what to use. It's not just that there are different buttons for your for your turrets and your torpedoes and your guns. It's 
coming to grips with the different senses at your disposal, your sonar, um, how to target things appropriately, what lock-on method to use for your torpedoes. And I think that even though the game does a very poor job of explaining them, um, after dying several times, (laughs) you'll, uh, you'll slowly come to grips with how to operate your little submarine and it's not so difficult that you're going to spend hours and hours of endless failure. No. You can you can get by with a basic understanding of the senses in the first few missions. And then by the end of the game, you're a complete pro at reading all the information. In front yeah, of you. and I actually think that the mission structure is done in such a way that it's got quite a good difficulty curve for this kind of self-teaching method. Like, the very first mission, you basically just stay still and hold the shoot button uh, to teach yourself how to blow up a ship and to end the mission. And then next, you're put into this mission where you just have to shoot stationary scrap that's floating through the area, which kind of teaches you basically how to move. Like, the game's missions force you to teach yourself in an organic way which i appreciated it's not perfect by any means but it wasn't so bad that like uh maybe you know the learning curve in heroes 3 when we did it a few weeks ago mm. was much worse than here way for worse, example yeah. yeah yeah i think this game makes the early missions very difficult and very organic and it kind of like one of the things that you'll have to do later in the game is control these turrets that are across your ship and Mm. the game doesn't give you those for quite a while and then when it does it only gives you one to start with so that you can get used to it and i think that this method of slowly giving the player more complexity uh, or more required complexity even like you don't even have to use torpedoes or anything for the first few mission is a really good way of letting people ease themselves in without having their hands held and i kind of liked that i um i failed i think it was the third mission a lot because that was a mission where i you know started teaching myself how to use the sensors you have to identify an enemy building like a communications array or something and yes. i kept going in there going how the hell do i identify this building <laughs> i couldn't <laughs> understand how to do it and you're getting shot at the whole time but yeah it was that mission where i was like all right i just got to learn the controls so i just kept pressing pressing h over and over again was experimenting with all the keys and you'll get there i i don't think it's too strenuous just be aware this game doesn't ease you into it like a lot of modern games do but it's like you said Nowhere near Heroes of Mind and Magic 3, which was a complexity bomb. There's, you, you do eventually just get a grip on it and you understand what you're working with. There is a limit to how difficult and complicated it gets. Yeah, and it's done in my favorite way, which is all that complexity is there to begin with. You just don't know about it. So if I was to play through the game again, I'd be an absolute pro with the first few <laughs> missions. Um, so yeah, no, I think it does a good job. The information presentation is excellent. Um, so did you want to talk about the actual combat and gameplay of the game? How did you feel about that? Yeah, so this is where, uh, once again, I must slip into criticism because although I think information is presented to you brilliantly and I do like the eventual feeling of, 
I guess, having a mastery over the different controls in your ship. It almost feels like, you know, in those movies where that guy's in the cockpit and he's like flicking all the weird switches <laughs> everywhere. I got that feeling several times throughout the game. The controls aren't perfect, um, but they are manageable. It's not as complicated as proper flight sims, but it's complicated enough to keep your interest. One big criticism before we go into yours is you can't actually rebind the controls in this game, which I think is god awful. I tried to do it. I couldn't. But was it an issue for you? Because I I didn't really mind uh, as much. Uh, I I just learned to press the right the keys. Yeah, it taught me I to. really wanted to remap lock on to be somewhere closer to my either my hands because it's like in the middle of the keyboard and you need to do it a lot. Right. Um, and that really annoyed me to the point where I wanted to rebind the key and then couldn't. So. Uh, yeah, keep that in mind. I have read online that it's probably preferable to play this game with a joystick, but, you know, mm. who has a joystick these days, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, joysticks in 2020, are you kidding me? <laughs> um, I think that if I were to get into my major criticism is that I ultimately found this game quite repetitive. Yeah. There are a variety of different missions. There are, Firstly, there are a lot of missions in this game. It's like 50 or something. Yeah, yeah. And you do get a lot of different goals, whether it's protecting bombers or escorting things, or there are even some stealth-like missions where you need to kind of slip into the current with your sonar turned off to avoid enemy patrols. But on the whole, after about 20 missions, you've kind of seen the vast majority of what this game has to offer you in terms of gameplay. And I don't think it ramps up in interesting and more dynamic combat scenarios it just kind of throws different combinations of enemies in your direction so i found the gameplay to start to grate a bit and to start to become a little boring um as i move towards probably past roughly the halfway point of this game i don't think it ever was so horrendous that i was like oh i don't want to play it was just I was like, I'm just bored with this. And I was mainly playing to see how the story would unravel and to get more tidbits of lore from the world building. How did um how did you feel about yeah, it? Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you. I think that in general the combat is fine. Like I was playing, you know, there's this instant fight mission on the main menu where it just throws you into a room full of lots of enemies. And I played that mm. quite a while before I got like super bored. I think when the pressure is on, the game does a good job of putting you into like this flow state where you're kind of like paying attention to everything because there's a lot to manage, right? You have to lock onto the right thing, be flying in the right areas. If there's torpedoes chasing you, you have to figure out how to deal with them. Um, and torpedoes are actually probably my favorite part of the gameplay, both in using them and dealing with enemy torpedoes, but we'll get into that later. Um, but, you know, in general, when there's a really heavy fight going on, I, you know, I don't have time to think. I'm just enjoying myself flying about. I think that the missions being quite short is a big benefit to the game, honestly. I found myself playing two to three at a time in the space of, you know, 10 minutes and enjoying it. I don't think I would enjoy this game as much if the missions were a lot longer. It's worth noting that you cannot save mid-mission either. Yes. Each mission is its own independent thing. Uh, I assume there's a way to emulate this with save states, but I don't know if save states exist with DOSBox. I have no idea. So we were just using the regular, you know, save in between each mission structure. 
I found it very punishing for the early missions because I was getting my butt kicked and it felt like I was wasting a lot of time. And then once I kind of learned how to play the game, it felt it felt fine. Like I was still failing missions here and there, but it felt a lot more manageable. I also had a couple of cheese strats that I have to admit I fell back onto. Um, okay. One of the big ones was uh, you can disable sonar to give yourself, I guess, extra range outside of the enemy, enemy's detection radius, and you can kind of accelerate backwards while an enemy is chasing you, and you can just kind of snipe them from a distance. Right. So when I was running into troubles, I had a couple of strategies to kind of get through difficult spots. I wasn't often using that because they were kind of slow and clunky to get working. I didn't know you could do that. Uh, what part? I st- I went backwards a lot, but I never. T- I didn't even know you could turn your sonar off. I knew you could turn your engines off, but yeah, I never turned my sonar off in order to. The only times I ever tried to be stealthy was when the mission required you to to go through those canyons and the currents to dodge the cannons. Yeah, yeah, to to dodge the cannons. I never used it mid combat. Did you do that a lot? No, I wasn't using it mid-combat as much as I was approaching combat scenarios I already knew were coming because I had failed a mission and was getting frustrated and wanted to get through it I I didn't do it frequently it's just there were strategies I could fall back on to help me get through these difficult missions rather than just repeatedly getting into endless dogfights yeah one thing I found myself doing in the dogfights a lot was especially against the bigger ships was like just driving my ships straight into the side and staying there out of the range of their cannons and just shooting them until they exploded. Um, yeah. I don't know if you did that a lot, I, but I wasn't um, I wasn't doing lots of drive-by shots. I did use ships for cover, perhaps not in that way. And I think it's something we should bring up. We The game has these simulation-esque aspects where it feels like you're a person in a cockpit flipping switches. And then it's got basically zero collision damage including with the sea floor if you ram the sea floor at full speed does absolutely nothing so i think that it's still primarily an arcadey sort of style you know yeah. flight sim I, I, it's more arcadey than it is sim like yeah definitely it's just yeah. um you have to get a hang on how the sensor systems work to act as your you know eyes and ears it's like learning to drive you need to learn how to use your mirrors to give you the you know three-dimensional view around your car in in this submarine game you need to learn to read all your senses and the information it's just not obvious when you first start playing yeah something that adds to the dogfighting i thought was the fact that um this game doesn't have like hit scan weapons or something it's got very projectile based bullets that come out of your ship mm-hmm. Um, and as such, because the ships are so fast, you have to learn to lead your shots a lot. The in-game information and your senses, you can actually upgrade your ship to the point where it'll put this aiming reticule on screen for you to show you where you should be shooting mm-hmm. in order to correctly lead your shots, which I thought was really cool. And, you know, I think that added a lot to the game. Do you, do you want to talk a little bit about the upgrade system now? Or was there something about the more intrinsic gameplay you wanted to touch on? Uh- 
Um, yeah, let's move on to that. Because, uh, yeah, basically you get, you know, every mission you'll get a certain amount of credits, like 4,000. And um, in the shop, there'll be different things that you can buy to equip to your ship as the game progresses, like new turrets, uh, new software for your turrets, new armor plating, different guns. But generally, one of the things that kind of disappointed me about this game was that there aren't as many options as I'd like. If I played through this game again, I would definitely be following the same upgrade path that I did the first time. Like, there's not a not a lot of variance that you can have between playthroughs. Unlike, you know, when we did Armor Core, mm. uh, we, we didn't like that game a lot, but one of the things we really did like about it was that there was such a huge breadth of upgrade options that made tinkering with your ship really fun. Um, this game doesn't have that. It's much lighter on those decisions, and in fact, honestly, the only big impactful decisions between missions are what torpedoes to buy, I think. Yeah, and like I said, I, I was about to say, it's really hard to play this and not compare it with Armored Core. <laughs> like, it just, yeah. <laughs> it just feels like the systems are so similar and even the mercenary nature is so similar. So yeah, you, you eventually, you upgrade your armor whenever you can afford to do so and you upgrade your guns and you know there are a few there are a few niche things like um the places where your torpedoes torpedoes are held like there's different cartridges which affects the firing speed and everything but as james said the primary difference in your combat comes in the um the torpedoes you select my favorite torpedoes and this is very boring but i think it was called the big bang <laughs> it was the one it was it was the slow-moving missile that did a shitload of damage because there are targets in this game that even with your auto turrets and your forward cannons firing full power, it will still take forever to kill it. Yeah. And I just liked those torpedoes because it was just it like... insane amount of damage, yeah. Yeah, whereas I found the guns were fine to kill most fighter crafts, yeah. except the bions. The bions have started to get more complicated. Yeah, it did a little bit. Um, I really like the torpedoes in this game, so... You can bring, depending on the size of your torpedo magazine, you can bring a set number into each mission. And there, in total, there's probably like 20 of them or 20 or so, uh, you know, that you can choose from, uh, maybe 15. A lot of them are just upgraded versions of other ones. Like yeah. there's the Flash Shark 1 and the Flash Shark 2. So 12 to 15 is probably more accurate. More accurate, yeah. And they're all quite different from each other. I was impressed. Like, different torpedoes have different ability to lock on to targets. Like, the first two you can buy, the Stanleys, they have no ability to lock on. They just shoot straight forward in front of you. So you have to get pretty close to land it and generally would only use them against bigger, slower-moving targets. Um, and then, you know, obviously the better torpedoes get more expensive and they have trade-offs. Like, um, something they, they add later into the game, which is one of the things I enjoyed about the progression of gameplay, which I wish there was more of, um, is that they add this idea of uh, electrical interference, EMP. So there are these tornadoes that you can shoot. The flash sharks. Yeah, the flash sharks yeah. that you can shoot at ships to disable their systems, which essentially renders them immobile because, you know, a lot of the later craft... Yeah, flash sharks are overpowered. Uh, very, yeah. I, I In fact, I think the leech is even more overpowered, but they're more expensive. They basically yeah. take out a ship, like, in one in one torpedo. But, you know, in this game, if you buy an upgrade, you can sell it back at full cost, like, basically the same as in Armored Core, although most people probably haven't played that game. But the torpedoes, every time you lose them, you're basically throwing away money. So you're trying to use them 
as little as possible to an extent, but if you do a lot of side missions, you can afford to, to use them. And I found that selecting the right torpedoes for the right mission to be really fun, actually. Yeah, and um, I, I also enjoyed the um, upgrading here. I did like, in a way, as much as I loved Armored Core's uh, level of customization, at times it could be a little overwhelming with uh, the options available to you. So it was nice just to be able to not worry too much about it and just kind of get on with the mission. I really started getting primarily Flash Sharks the later the game went, though. Yeah. I, I just found that it was far and away the most effective way to deal with the Bion ships, which were a level of threat above anything I'd faced up to that point. And being able to disable them and make them sitting ducks was very much Yeah, I basically never bought those big bangs that you were in love with. I basically, <laughs> a lot of the game I just got Stanley 2s, like the very second missile that you can get, yeah. and then just like very closely drove into another ship and then shot it at point blank range <laughs> if it was really tanky. Yeah, that's funny. I did that a lot, like a lot. It was really fun. Um, and then I guess the other side of the coin is enemies shooting torpedoes at you which i think is quite a fun gameplay element actually yeah. because the there's a number of ways that you can deal with torpedoes in this game um so the first way is that there are these items called buzzers that you can buy that are these little devices that you throw out into the water and they make a lot of noise and they distract the torpedo some torpedoes some torpedoes yeah, yeah which because you can't tell what torpedo your is being fired at you, it's kind of difficult to be able to use these effectively, and I found myself not buying them very often. The second method um, is actually, so torpedoes follow you at different speeds, and they have different agility, I guess, or ability to turn, but most of them turn pretty poorly, so what you can do is you can dive straight down towards the ocean floor and then yep. pull up at the last second, and then the torpedo will smash into the floor, which is kind of cool. And I discovered later on, you can actually do that to enemy ships, like the bigger ones. You pull up from the enemy bomber and the enemy's torpedo following you will smash into the enemy ship, blowing them up. See, I was very boring, James. I was pretty much using the dive into the C4 method 90% of the time. Yeah, I started using the, uh, like, getting them to go into the enemies a lot as the game went on, because I, <laughs> I felt so clever when I figured <laughs> out you could do that. It was really fun. Um, and then I guess the last method is that you can install turrets on your ship and software in them that uh, has them target enemy torpedoes for you, which is very expensive and uses your energy but is pretty worth it honestly later in the game and against some of the enemies which are very torpedo happy you basically have to do this i kind of just in terms of general strategy i tended just to face a bunch of guns forward to maximize my firepower yeah because the turrets are interesting in that you can have them roaming on their software or you can have them face forward shooting what you're shooting mm -hmm. or you can command them to shoot what you're locked on so what i would do generally is most of the time i would have my turrets facing forward but, you know, if I got locked on, I would quickly turn the software on uh, and then try to evade the torpedo. And in some missions with very torpedo-happy factions, I would basically have them on 
protect Mijuti the entire time. Yeah, so there's basically a lot of like interesting wrinkles going on here. And I don't want to, when I say the gameplay is boring, I don't want to say I hated it or the experience sucked. It's just that I, I just feel like it reaches a point where you've seen most of what the game has to offer you. It's less that the gameplay is boring, right? It's more that you just do the same thing so often that it becomes boring. Yes. It, it, and once again, I had a similar problem with Armored Core. Because the story and gameplay are in such separate boxes, it's harder because the nature of the gameplay is you're driving your ship from location to location. You don't get the story and the gameplay so intertwined that you can pretend you're doing something different from the same thing over and over again. Uh, when you're playing, you know, I'll go back to Deus Ex as another example. When you're playing a Deus Ex game, you're doing the same thing over and over again. You're sneaking into locations and taking out guards and everything. But because the story is so intertwined with the gameplay, you don't notice as much that you're doing the same thing repeatedly because you're given context for your actions. In this, I just feel like with the gameplay and story in such separate boxes, it's a lot harder to establish that context. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. I think um, some missions did a better job of others tying themselves to the overall story, but in general, yeah, I wish the gameplay had escalated a bit better towards the end of the game. It did become quite a bit of a slog to do the same thing over and over and over again which is a shame because you know towards the start and closer to the middle of the game i was having a lot of fun um and then it became too much near the end honestly there is um another cool like small thing that i wanted to bring up um did you notice that like at the very end all the shops slashed their prices to literally 10 yeah. percent of what they 10%. were originally yeah, because it makes sense. Because in the story, all of the all of the nations are getting together to fight this overwhelming, you know, evil that they have to stop. And yeah. you know, who the hell is going to be price gouging in such an important <laughs> critical time? Yeah, so you get whatever you want. Yeah, basically infinite money. I, I I did enjoy that. And actually, like one of the dialogue pieces I did like at the game was near the very end, where you're like you're going to be fighting in the final fight um, to save humanity, basically, but. You still have to ask, how much money am I going to be earning from this? <laughs> they thought that was probably the best piece of dialogue in the game, honestly. It is pretty funny how Flint can't get over the fact that there's more types of power than just having lots of money. money. Yeah. Having, having influence with all those factions is probably worth more than just money, but he doesn't seem to have a he goal really other likes than credits. accumulating wealth. Yeah, he loves money <laughs> he just, and he loves drinking uh, and he loves women. Uh, and he wants to keep spending it on his ship so to that kill he can things. make more money, yeah. <laughs> more money, yeah. There's no end goal there. Yeah, I think um, if the world hadn't gone to shit, Flint would be a very avid World of Warcraft player. Um, it, <laughs> it is funny how he doesn't have a tragic background like nearly every other character that fits this trope he's just he's just a mercenary a yeah he's just, just a guy wants to earn endless money. yeah, <laughs> yeah i kind of like that i think the character could have been more interesting and just unfortunately wasn't written that way so i guess that's most of the gameplay and the uh well, most of the gameplay did we want to have one more story break and then go into aesthetics let's uh we've talked about the story so much that let's instead have a music break instead of a story break how about that james <laughs> how about that? <laughs> 
<laughs> no, Patrick, you're going to read everybody a bedtime story and then we'll talk about the graphics. But okay. Um, have, you, have you spent this time actually picking out a piece of music? Yeah, of course I have. And we totally didn't just pause the recording for like five minutes so I could find one. Um, <laughs> but uh, my favorite piece of music is kind of odd. It's called Aqua. Um, and it's actually, it's the one that plays with, it's got like a documentary playing in the background of it, of like the history of the world, uh, kind of dispersed through the music. And I kind of liked that. So here's Arco guys. That was Aqua, my hastily picked piece of music. I hope you enjoyed it. I kind of did. Um, So I guess this is where we start talking about the visuals and sound. So, Patrick, where did you want to start? Well, let's start with um, briefly revisiting the music because we just um, have listened to a piece. I just want to re-emphasize my feelings on it. I touched on them briefly when I introduced Below. I don't hate the music. And the thing is, it's not... It's not even that it doesn't fit the feeling of the game some of the time. It's just that I don't think it fits the overall tone of the game most of the time. When you're in combat, if if that music was a combat trigger, like it only played when you started firing on an enemy vessel, I think it would be completely fine. For it to play the moment your mission starts, when you're just trying to head to a navigation point, or in the middle of stealth sections, or when you're escorting a bomber through the deeps and you want to create a sense of tension that you might be attacked at any time, this music is inappropriate. And that's why I found myself turning it off. Not that there weren't moments where I was like, this is good and well-suited, but that there were too many moments when it, where it wasn't. Yeah, and there's only like four tracks in the entire game, so it's not like you get a whole lot of variety for how many missions there are. Um, it's funny, the game actually gives you the option of changing the music track. Like, the music tracks are bound to 1, 2, 3, and 4 on the keyboard, so you can just change them at any time. It's quite odd. They're kind of samey as well, yeah, honestly. Yeah, they are. Uh, 
you know, I'm not a huge fan. I, I wouldn't recommend the soundtrack to somebody who just wants to listen to some music ever, but I don't hate it. I liked the ambient music. Like, I liked the ambient sound effects of this game a lot, and I just didn't want... I can see why people like it, but it's not my cup of tea, and I think that at times it detracted from the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so... let's talk about the, the sound that matters, and that's the ambient <laughs> tracks, because I really want to talk exactly. about that. Because like from the, All the sound. Yeah, the moment that you boot up this game and you've even got the logos of the company that made it that are playing, there is this droning hum that sounds like you're kind of underwater or in some, you know, industrial facility thousands of leagues under the sea. And it's just present throughout the entire game, and it's so good and it's setting the tone it reminded me a little bit of the quake soundtrack not that they were trying to accomplish the exact same thing but it was that emphasis on ambient sound not the pounding of obvious music in your ears it helps set the tone and what you're meant to be feeling because yeah you're you know you're kilometers under the water you are not in a safe place. You know, living this horrifically fragile existence under the sea and you're just constantly reminded of that with the sound effect. It's great. Even like when you're firing your guns underwater, it it sounds like you're shooting guns underwater. There's this weird muffling of the sound effect that takes place. You know, it really sells the underwater feeling quite well it's it's everything it's the the gun and torpedo noises as you said the beeping and all of the noises of your senses clicking into location are wonderful there's a great sense of feedback i i said that the ui is brilliant in delivering the information one of the ways in which information is delivered to the player is through sound every time you change target or something gets destroyed you get sound cue feedbacks so the sound does a good good job gameplay wise in keeping you in the loop on what's actually happening as well yeah absolutely and one of my particularly favorite parts of the sound is that in the visual novel sections when you go into each room there's this ambient sound effect that matches the room like if you go into a factory you can hear the sound of grinding gears and like saw blades and pistons and people working away at fixing ships or if you go into a bar you can hear tables and chairs rattling and people walking around and talking to each other it's great i think uh i think it does an excellent job of setting the tone in every aspect of the game yeah when you when you go to leave you you get that groaning of the doors slowly slowly come open to put you into the airlock where your um where your ship is it's uh sound is excellent i'm very happy with the uh with the job it does yeah yeah it's incredible i wish the music was as high quality i i actually especially liked the little like um you know when you go in between cities there's that loading screen that just shows your ship flying by i kind of mm. liked the sound that it made as it went past yeah the yeah no it's uh it's good and yeah i think that what this game needed for its music was it needed like three times as many tracks and it needed to have different tracks playing in different points in the mission, yep. depending on what was happening on the screen. And obviously, that's a lot to ask. But uh, yeah, it's so important now nowadays, for me at least, as a person who originally just didn't care about music, it's really important that the music is reflective of the time. Yeah, um, and the sequel actually does everything you're saying, which is nice. So they oh, did um they excellent. did they did learn from their mistakes there. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm glad they expanded on it. Because yeah, I can see that if you're just going into the arcade mode over and over again, 
the music's probably great because you're always in these fight situations. <laughs> yeah. But for the for the narrative and story experience, it wasn't ideal for me. Yeah, I can definitely see that. So let's go on to our final section, um, which is the graphics. Patrick, how did you feel about that? Uh, this was a mixed bag for me. It's a complex uh, issue, hey. <laughs> firstly, let's start with the city sections. I love the images of the cities and all the various underwater locations you go to. They all looked extremely distinct, beautifully painted uh, or illustrated, whatever it was. Uh, Very cool. I've already gone into how I think that the visual novel sections in particular were a little too blurry and low detailed for me to be sucked into the atmosphere of them. So not a big fan. I think that the graphics, when it comes to the gameplay, they're pretty average. Uh, Once again, they're extremely low resolution. I don't have a problem with the draw distance. Like I said, there's a very good reason for the uh, draw distance to be so low. But the models on the turrets and the ships and everything, they just kind of look like ugly blocks. And even the supposedly super advanced Bionic ships are still kind of ugly bricks. I can imagine if this game was made a lot more modern, like in modern times, the ship designs would be a lot more sleek and cool. And yeah, underwater blocky ships are just not particularly inspiring design-wise. You know, I basically perfectly agree with you here. Um, Apart from maybe the visual novel bits, I actually think all of the story segments look really great. Like, excellent even. I, I really like them. I think they're very atmospheric and very tonally consistent. And I think they still look cool, even today. Uh, I agree with you. It, the actual in-game graphics are really low resolution and haven't aged well at all. Um, the Like, the HUD looks cool and the instruments are really useful, but, you know, no one's going to be blown away by this game in this day and age. They don't get in the way of playing the game, so that's a plus, but... <sighs> On the whole, it looks pretty bad when you're, you know, in the cockpit. Yeah, and the the HUD and the UI are great. I don't know if we really went into it. In fact, we didn't, but we can touch on it briefly here. Over the course of the game, you get four different ships, and uh, it's very cool uh, having the different ships because they all function quite differently until you get the final ship, which just completely kicks ass. But your um, your cockpit changes every single time you get a new ship. And I love the way it changes and I love the way the information is presented to you kind of shifts around as your different information readers, you know, are displayed in different locations. So in terms of how am I functionally interacting and getting information, the game looks great. In terms of how pretty is this game, it's pretty ugly. So don't play this game for the graphics because you'll be disappointed. Yeah, and I guess that's um, pretty much our summary on all the different bits. So, Patrick, I have mixed feelings about this game. On the one hand, the background lore contained within the manual is some of the best I've ever seen or read in a video game, full stop. I would 100% recommend going and getting a copy of that manual and reading through of it. It was really, really enjoyable. As for the game, mixed feelings. Like, I actually am going to say I'd recommend playing through 
half of this game because really about at the halfway point it hits this point where it just stops introducing new elements and the game mm-hmm. just stagnates but before that i had a lot of fun like learning to read all the different instruments and like this low visibility blindness feeling where you know you start the game having a, a really difficult time navigating the world and then suddenly becoming a pro at it as you play more you're not going to get this experience anywhere else honestly and the lack of visibility here is probably very unique to this game and i found it a real joy to master um and then once i'd mastered it and the rest of the combat it just became very flat so um you know overall i really loved the first half of this game and then got quite bored uh once it stagnated so read the read the manual 100 percent, and then decide to play the game if you like the story so um i also recommend playing this game it's it's a thumbs up for me and i have my fair share of criticisms of this game like I think that the dialogue is just flat out poorly written, which I assume has a lot to do with the translation issue, the graphics or whatever. I'm not big into the music. I found the gameplay quite repetitive at points, but there is enough interesting here that it was a very engaging experience for me. I think that what you need to do when you play this game is you're going to enjoy the learning process if you can get over that initial hump you have the honeymoon period where the game's really fun as you learn to master your UI. And like James said, it eventually slips into repetition. I think you should play this game until you stop enjoying it. Because if you're if you're like me and you were enjoying it enough, you can push through the somewhat repetitive gameplay and finish it and still have a good time overall. You just need to be prepared to say, if you've played about halfway through, that you've seen most of what the game has to offer you. And it's okay to quit there. Um, it's definitely worth playing even that much. It was a it was a good time, James. You actually finally picked one good for once. Yeah, I actually thought you might enjoy this one um, deep down, but the game's also quite cheap. You can get it for like $3 or off GOG um, so it's not you know a huge cost if you do decide you'd like to play it so yeah mixed bag from us but overall yeah definitely recommend excellent world I love the world of Aqua to bits it's like probably my top three settings for any video game series ever I love it um, so just based on that alone definitely give it a look okay so I believe that just about wraps it up uh, thank you so much to everyone for listening to us go on about Archimedean Dynasty for the past hour or so. My name is Patrick Arthur uh, and my co-host is James Turlings and we are the Retrospectives Podcast. You can find us on every podcast catcher under the sun or if you want to head to our website, rspodcast.net, you can add us directly to any podcast app you have. We're also available on Spotify or you can listen on our website directly on the many, many episodes and games that we've done retrospectives of. Also on our website uh, are lots and lots of articles, mostly on the various retro games we've been playing, but also on a few new ones as well. Most recently, I put up a belated review of the 2016 Doom game that may just be followed up with a Doom Eternal review now that I finally have time (laughs) to play it. 
Um, so that was Archimedean Dynasty. If you guys have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can drop over to our Discord server. And we would love if you would do so because if there's one thing we like doing, it's talking about video games. So if you have a dissenting opinion or as it is very rarely one that agrees with us, we would love to hear for you, from you. So we'll put a link to a Discord in the show notes and we'd love if you would drop on by. Now that we're at the end of the show, it's time for us to discuss what we're doing for the next episode. And I promise everyone there won't be three weeks until this one. We'll have it coming out next fortnight. Now that we've done James's game, it's time for me to choose. And this fortnight, I have selected Tribes Vengeance, the unknown middle child of the Tribes genre. James, have you had you heard of Tribes Vengeance before I brought it up with you? Um, I've never heard of Vengeance specifically, but I did play a fair few hours of Tribes Ascend when it was very big. I'm uh, hoping it's somewhat similar. Well, it's the only Tribes game with a proper single-player campaign, and from memory, I've only played the first couple of hours. I don't remember much of it, but from memory, it was actually fairly well received for its story. So, I'll be interested to see how well how well it's actually held up and if the gameplay can hold up in a single player setting instead of the multiplayer setting that we've both played tribes in so uh that's coming next fortnight thank you once more to everyone for listening to us this uh for this week's episode and uh we'll see you again shortly adios amigos see ya